Hi, everyone. Before we start the episode, I have a bit of good news and a favour to ask. First, the good news. One Decision has been selected as a finalist for the first annual Signal Listener's Choice Award in the category Best Conversation Starter. And now, the favour. We need your vote. Please head over to our Twitter page, at OneDecisionPod, to vote now. The deadline to vote is December 22nd, and the episode in the running was Lithuania and the Two Goliaths, the tiny Baltic nation taking on Russia and China. Without further ado, let's start the show. In an address to the nation, Putin said reservists will be drafted into the army to fight in Ukraine. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. French President Emmanuel Macron tweeted, abortion is a fundamental right for all women. It must be protected. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson also condemned the decision. It clearly, it has massive impacts uh, on people's uh, thinking around the world. It's a very important decision. I've got to tell you, I think it's a big step backwards. Breaking news, the deal is done. Twitter has been sold to Elon Musk. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO acquired the social media company for roughly $44 billion. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. You're listening to a special episode of One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. When I first joined this podcast, having spent four years as a foreign correspondent at the US network ABC News, I was really looking forward to exploring global politics and events in depth at a slower, perhaps more thoughtful pace than you tend to get in the world of network news broadcasts. The world was slowly emerging after two long years of the COVID-19 pandemic. America was gearing up for an election year. But from early on in 2022, there were hints that it was not going to be a quiet year after all. So we decided to publish a survey of what were perhaps the most significant decisions made in 2022 and invite along a few friends of the podcast to our studio in London to chew over the results. So it has turned into quite the fast-moving year of news and we really have had far too many significant moments to choose from. And so in order to help us, we've enlisted the help of 100 journalists around the world to vote on what were the most important decisions made in 2022 that shaped our world. And while some of the results were surprising, they also showed a clear lead at the top of the table. First of all, we had Vladimir Putin's decision to launch a ground invasion into Ukraine uh, beyond the areas he's occupied in the East since 2014, of course. And then shortly after that, interestingly, uh, came the decision of the US Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark piece of legislation that enshrines a woman's right to abortion in the US. Uh, the third most important decision uh, was that of the Chinese Communist Party to uh, confirm Xi Jinping's unprecedented third term in office. Now, we will go through our list um, 
uh, of important decisions. But first of all, I want to introduce this amazing panel that's with me today to help me chew over the ramifications uh, of these decisions. We have joining us Anne McElvoy, who is executive editor of The Economist and head of their radio output. You may have heard her hosting many of their panels and podcasts, including The Economist Asks. Uh, We have Maria Tadeo, friend of the podcast and correspondent at Bloomberg TV, covering everything EU economics and NATO. Very good friend of the podcast. Uh, And last but not least, we have Prashant Rao, who is joining us from the news startup Semaphore, formerly of The Atlantic, via The New York Times and AFP in Baghdad, Hong Kong, and London. Uh, Thank you so much, all of you, for being with us today. We've got a fair amount to get through. Uh, But let's start with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And before the actual day, the 24th of February, when he launched those ground troops over the border, let's just go back a wee bit earlier, because I think there are a couple of things that are worth reminding us ourselves about. Back in 2021 last year, there was that growing buildup of Ru- Russian troops near Crimea, near the border with Ukraine. Russian officials were constantly denying that this was taking place, uh, denying that this meant that they were preparing for an incursion. The United States becoming more and more agitated as the months went by uh, with repeated warnings about what Putin's intentions were, uh, which interestingly were not at least publicly, shared by even the Ukrainians. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was downplaying the US intelligence assessments of a potential invasion at the start of the year. And he even said, it's been like this since 2014. Um, And then, of course, we had February 4th, which was the day that China and Russia issued that really interesting joint statement opposing further NATO expansion, that that press conference where they declared that they had friendship with no limits. So to start off with, I'm going to go to you, Anne, first of all. What do we think went on at that particular press conference. Where we were, we were a month before he actually launched his invasion into Ukraine. Xi Jinping went over to Beijing at the start of the Winter Olympics. They had that very interesting press conference. What do you think was going on here? Was Putin briefing Xi about his plans for Ukraine? Was Xi saying, whatever, just don't do it during my Winter Olympics? Uh, What do you think that was all about? It really depends what account you read. I remember at the time there was a protocol that seemed to be saying there was a bit of a warning to Mm. Putin not to overdo it. Mm. Uh, And the presidency was basically waving a finger at him. But then when you look at uh, what was put out on Chinese media, and looked again, of course, under control of the Kremlin, what Russian media was reporting, you were often hearing much more friendly tones. The way I would read through all of that is that the terms were being effectively nailed down in the background mm. on which Putin would be allowed to go ahead. And you mentioned uh, 2014. I'm very pleased you did. This idea, I think, that it all just started when everything rolled across the border in February is really not right. I mean, 2014, was the invasion of uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian territory, that the West just chose to play down and try to get rid of through Minsk Accords uh, and put somewhere in a closet and hope it never came out again. I suspect what happened was that Putin at least signalled very strongly to see I don't think he would hold it from him. It would be too much risk because there is still a bit of jeopardy in that relationship, which we might come on to. He can't fool around too much, I think, uh, with his... His authority when it comes to dealing with the Chinese. And my guess is that Beijing said, well, go ahead, but don't overdo it. Now, the question is, is that still the view that they take so long after this mm. conflict started? Yeah. And Prashant, 
I I almost feel kind of sorry for the White House because there was that it was a couple of weeks before Putin actually bit the bullet and went ahead for it that the White House was saying Putin's going to invade Putin's going to invade and a whole lot of us uh, on this side of the Atlantic we were pretty complacent about it and certainly uh, my co-host on this podcast Richard Dearlove and I both were like Putin's not gonna he's not gonna invade Ukraine he's not that stupid I mean the, the Americans were right. I mean, you could call it complacent. You could also say that as journalists who grew up on the Iraq war, we had sort of reasonable questions about the, you know, the vociferousness of American intelligence, because the last time or one of the last times that the United States told the sort of international press corps that an invasion is about or, you know, there were weapons of mass destruction and uh, dictators about to do something horrible, you know, it turned out that like that intelligence did not live up to the uh, sort of claims that were being made. And so I think, you know, I, I think it's right. One of the organizations, one of the um, groupings that has been vindicated um, through the course of this has been American intelligence. Um, and so entirely full credit to them. But I, I think complacency is certainly one characterization. I, I think that's a fair one to lob at the press corps, anybody who kind of questioned it. But at the same time, I think it was reasonable for us to be complacent. Just go, going back to the sheet thing, though, I think one of the interesting reports in the past month um, that I think has been really fascinating is the Financial Times has a piece that not everybody's followed up on and you know hasn't been confirmed, but I'm, I've been utterly fascinated by it about citing sort of anonymous Chinese officials, which you rarely see in the Western press, um, talking about how um, Xi Jinping believed he'd been had in that February meeting. Um, and, you know, this is fascinating on a number of levels. One, you know, Chinese officials talking at all to the Western press is sort of unusual. Um, but secondarily, you know, making Xi look bad um, as well, you know, if that leaker was ever found out, you know, were they sanctioned to speak, all these kinds of things. So I think, you know, you're absolutely right to sort of figure out what happened at that meeting and the fact that we don't know is, is you know, hugely important to global history. Um, but it is certainly, I think, coming out that um, it might well have been that Putin didn't Tell of, the truth. Didn't tell oh, the d- truth. Yeah. Goodness, that would be new. Yeah, what it? a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that would be interesting because that would revisit the way that it was put at the time that in some terms he signalled mm. uh, enough to get the go-ahead. But that's not quite the same, is it, as saying, oh, by the way, I'm about to sort of launch a war that's going to sort of suck everybody in and take up most of a year. Maria, you recently sat down with the NATO Secretary General who last week uh, said at an FT event that he believes the conflict will likely enter a quieter phase over winter, but that Russia is, so, is showing no signs of seeking a peaceful end to the conflict nearly 10 months into his war. And you spoke to the Secretary General uh, quite recently. Yeah, I did. And, and there's two things that he said to me that I it really stuck with me. First of all, he said, this is now a war that's perverse because it's not an army that fights another army. This is Russia 100% intentionally destroying the energy infrastructure of Ukraine. They know that temperatures are going minus. We all know it's a, it's a very cold country. I mean, that's not a secret. And essentially what you have is people and every time I think of this my blood just kind of it's it's incredible to think of this in the heart of Europe in 2022 that you could have people that could die of uh, cold this winter and this idea that Russia believes it will break the will of the Ukrainian people and at one point it will be the Ukrainian people who will tell Zelensky we need 
some type of peace deal. You have to now uh, talk to Vladimir Putin. By the way, the Ukrainians always say, we did try, but he never took him seriously. He never wanted to speak on the phone with Zelensky because he is referred to in the Russian media until recently as a clown. Russia only speaks to the great powers of the world. He's an actor. He's a fool. Well, the situation, of course, has turned out to be very different. And then on the other hand, uh, when it comes to NATO, I think there's a real debate about the weapons. So it is clear they need weapons, but what type of weapons? And if you go into long range, then that means should Ukraine hit Russia? Do they have a right to hit Russia? And ultimately, some believe this comes down to Crimea. And Crimea is very dangerous because the Ukrainians are not willing to let go of this. Well, it's not just Crimea, but um, Anne, Putin uh, a few months ago declared that Kherson, uh, the city in the south near Crimea, he declared it part of the Russian Federation when the Russians had taken control. And, you know, so technically the Ukrainians have attacked, I quote, Russian Federation territory, but also quite recently we've had reports in the press about drone attacks well within Russian territory. So in a way, the Ukrainians are actually sort of responding, perhaps not in kind, but they have uh, attacked the Russians at home. Well, you're absolutely right to, to make that point about Kherson. And of course, the, the more territory Putin puts a big sticker on that says this is Russian Federation, then he has a better excuse if he wants to escalate to say, well, the Ukrainians attacked Russian territory. There are also uh, attacks falling into existing uh, Russian territory, as was in the in the status quo ante. That is true. But if you look at it from the perspective of Ukraine, otherwise they're always just going to be defensive. So what happens is they get like, whacked in terrible ways, both by conventional methods, but also, uh, you know, as we were just reflecting there, that people are effectively being sort of Awful. starved into submission or frozen into submission or not having water supplies. And are they simply supposed to kind of fire back within the range of the territory they're in while their neighbour has invaded them? This is a really tricky area, but I think it is the one that it comes down to and that the Biden administration, and ultimately you can send a lot of postcards to leaders on the bits, but the one that matters is the one that reaches the White House. Does the White House say, okay, this has now gone on so long, so much is at stake. It is really about the survival of Ukraine that, you know, we will back you as long as there's great visibility, which there is, of what you're going to do. You know, we don't want you doing things that we don't want to, to be responsible for. But that is something I still feel when I'm listening to Biden, I'm listening to officials in Washington. I do feel it's through a glass darkly. I don't think they're very clear on that. I suspect they'll have to be in the months ahead. Prashant, because we've touched upon the attacks by Russia on civilian infrastructure, uh, the kind of psychological warfare and and physical warfare uh, they are inflicting by taking away people's heating during winter, taking away their water supply. We have had this as part of the conversation at the start of the Ukraine war that a lot of what we were seeing in Ukraine was going on in Syria and did not receive the same amount of attention. Yeah, there, there I think there are two interesting lessons from this. Um, Anne's uh, colleague, uh, Shashank Joshi, was fantastic on The Economist Babbage podcast recently talking about um, the sort of cyber warfare that the Russians initially waged. And one of the points he made, which I thought was really astute, was, you know, the fact that the Russians didn't try to disable civilian infrastructure at the beginning of the war suggested that they, they thought they would take over because they thought that they would eventually have control of civilian infrastructure. And the fact that they are attacking civilian infrastructure now suggests a step change in how they perceive future control of, of Ukraine um, and the likelihood that they 
probably will not control Ukraine. Um, I think this is, you know, Putin said yesterday in his speech, uh, yesterday or this uh, recently, sorry, in his speech to the National Security Council about how this is going to be a protracted war. Uh, I think this has now become clear to Moscow that this is not going to be, and obviously it's clear to everyone that this is likely to go into next year and possibly into the year beyond. Um, now, the other thing that is, uh, to your point, uh, interesting is, you're right, we saw this in Syria, but at the same time, you know, you're right to mention we saw it in 2014, we saw it in Georgia. We've seen We've seen this play out for actually quite some time. Um, and the idea that any of this is new is, I mean, the facts are new, but in fact, all of this was signaled to us for a long, long time. And I say us as the collective people who lived in London, Washington, Brussels, Paris, Berlin. Um, none of this is that surprising. You know, exactly as you say, if you'd watched how Syria and, um, and General Armageddon, Sarifkin, the, uh, the general who's currently in charge of Russian armed forces, um, partake the conflict in Syria, this is not that different from what is happening now in Ukraine. If you saw the sort of slow takeover of territory in Georgia, then the takeover of territory in Ukraine wasn't that surprising. Um, there are lots of these things that Putin has actually signaled to us in the past. Chechnya is also another great precursor in terms of evidentiary um, signaling of what he believes conflict to entail. Um, and I think all of these should have told us what was going to happen. I covered the war in Chechnya a long time ago. I mean, I do feel I'm sitting here on this panel like someone is going to come and say, you know, I was around when Palmerston was looking off Britain's foreign, <laughs> foreign policy. So forgive me, and I won't I won't go down memory lane too far, but the sheer, I had done the Balkans war before in Yugoslavia, but the sheer destruction of mm. Chechnya, which, I mean, it was also very clearly going to lead to, to a change, getting rid of Yeltsin. Putin was the beneficiary and drove it. But I think it's a very good point that, we're almost programmed to forget the amount of destruction that can be unleashed when you get a power that decides that that is how it is going to measure its strength and success. And there's been a degree to which Chechnya, too far away, too minor perhaps in the world stage, uh, to be much referred to. But I think you're absolutely right to point out that it's almost again and again... Moscow has tried to remind us what it's capable of. And again and again, we've gone, yeah, but you don't really mean it, do you? Maria, you are based in Brussels. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, I want to take you back. Where were you when the invasion launched? What was the reaction of EU leaders? Well, funnily enough, the there was a European summit that was happening that day. And uh, I remember, and I have this ingrained in my brain, the face of the Polish uh, Prime Minister, Morawiecki, who was just furious. Uh, the Lithuanians, just furious. The Baltics, this is now a full-scale war. And, and we told you for a very long time, the idea that Vladimir Putin wants a return of the USSR, that Russia is an imperialistic nation by history that feeds off neighbors. This was not an exaggeration. And in the West, you did not believe us for so long. I think also, I remember, and I can't say who told me this, but there was also this idea of you know what, Zelensky, in a week, he's dead. I can't really say who told me this, but 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 a European official at that point, there was this idea that in a week, this is over and Zelensky is dead or gone. And we talked about how there were signals and Russia has done this uh, previously and so on. But I think, of course, there's, there's a miscalculation also in the Russian part that this has been a social media war, so that has changed the nature of the war in so many ways. The message was very good from the Ukrainians. Uh, that day, I remember President Zelensky on his phone recorded himself 6 a.m. in the morning. He said, we're not going to leave. There's a full-scale war, but we are here and stay with us. Actually, I think the most important point in all of this is something that you said off-air earlier is, frankly, none of this matters because the only place that matters right now is D.C. 
mm-hmm. like what Washington does, totally. the, the equipment it provides, the defense support it provides, the, the intelligence the it provides, totally. all of it. This is really what makes or breaks. I mean, if you look at the charts that illustrate the defense support that's been given to Ukraine, what even Britain, which has been out of, you know, far ahead of many European powers in what it's given, it's not. It's a sort of drop in the ocean compared to what the United States has done. And can I just say, I have been to. Well, I was in in Romania last week. Uh, I've been in Poland, the Baltics. We've been an entire tour. And when you read the news, when you turn on the TV, when you see kind of the the, the media cycle that they have, it's all about President Biden and NATO. We spent all of this time in Brussels debate. Oh, well, von der Leyen said this and the commission and the UK and Macron. We don't understand what he says and he's confusing. And Charles, why is he so weak? In Eastern Europe, it's about NATO 200 percent. It's about D.C., it's President Biden and who's going to send what? Absolutely. Well, that brings us beautifully to the second answer (laughs) of our survey. And interestingly, um, the decision of the US Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was actually the second, voted the second uh, most important decision of 2022. I I mean, I, I wonder what you guys think about that. Personally, I think the fact that there are now a lot of states, particularly ones that have had trigger laws before the Supreme Court made this uh, made this move, that now abortion is illegal in, in a lot of places in the US. I mean, I don't believe it has international impact, but certainly it has really shifted a lot of the ground in the states. And the states obviously impacts all the rest of us and of course the Ukrainians were watching the US midterm elections extremely carefully. So I wonder if perhaps the fact that Roe v. Wade uh, had really important consequences for the midterm elections and perhaps gave the Democrats a helping hand and retaining the House, excuse me, the Senate, and will therefore make it easier for the Americans to support Ukraine. I mean, Anne, what do you make of the fact that Roe v. Wade was the second most important decision of 2022? In some ways, I'm heartened that it was, because it's quite hard for those outside a country, even one as influential as America, to get very interested in social and health policy of other countries. You know, it's always a a harder sell journalistically. But I think that this did capture the imagination. For many people, it was really the sense of, if we're looking around the world, where is their progress and where is their regress? This felt regressive. And I don't mean to say that everybody, you know, who has doubts about term limits or a more nuanced debate about abortion, I appear on a show called The Moral Maze, and it's exactly what we would debate. We have different views on the panel. But there was a sense that here was a sort of sledgehammer being applied to a fundamental right and that it would have very bad consequences. And I also believe it will and is having very bad consequences. So in a sense, I think that is good. I think it is good that there is a sense, if you like, of a civic society in debate that isn't always about who's attacking whom in oil prices. And I say that knowing that I've got a Bloomberg uh, representative that <laughs> <laughs> lives and breathes this stuff. Um, but we do have to remember that societies are also about what freedoms you have, what are you able to do, what are you not able to do. And those who suffer most from those decisions, so I think in the case uh, when it comes to abortion rights, uh, are those who often don't get their voices heard. They're not in those big debates that we're having uh, about geopolitics. And as you say, it may well, I'm still curious, I'd love to know what the other panellists think, how much it paid into the midterm. Some people say a lot, some people say not at all. I was worried that it might just become one of those left Democrat motivator issues. And of course, a lot of Democrats also have um, doubts about abortion. So I was, my jury was out on it. It appears that it did have some influence, but I would be interested in what other people think on that. I mean, I think 
the polling seems to indicate it had it had an impact, at least in blunting um, Republican gains. Um, you know, given the polling suggested that the Republicans would easily take the House and possibly take the Senate, and neither were bor- was borne out. Um, I'm actually more interested, you know, in the long-term ramifications for American politics. Um, I think if you listen and read sort of conservative commentators in the United States, one of the kind of questions that came up right after the decision was, you know, I think um, in the Republican umbrella, uh, Roe v. Wade provided was a unifying force um, to a disparate uh, group of interest groups, um, you know. Much as you say, uh, Democrats had concerns about uh, have concerns about abortion. I think there's a coterie of Republicans who, you know, support uh, abortion rights. Um, sort of what we, you know, possibly like what we old fashioned described as Reagan Republicans or the kind of people who don't want to get involved in, you know, classic economist readers to some degree, um, or you know, of a different era perhaps. But um, and so losing this kind of unifying force and then uniting it on the other side of de- with Democrats and providing a kind of unifying umbrella to campaign on, I think could have a long-term impact on American politics that could also reshape where, you know, party votes come from. Um, I mean, to say nothing also of the fact that just, I think Anne's point, you know, cannot be understated, just focusing in on a woman's right to choose around the world, it, it sort of provoked debates in places that didn't typically have those debates. I mean, suddenly we've seen a bunch of stories about like, what is the abortion limit in France? Uh, why do women in Northern Ireland have to cross, you know, the cross water to get an abortion? Um, I think that sort of generated a level of debate about, as you say, a, an element of social policy that does not get sufficient debate. And that had international ramifications that um, we could not reasonably have predicted. And that's really only because it happened in the United States. And the United States is sort of multitudinous impact around the world our third voted biggest decision of 2022, which was the decision of the CCP to confirm Xi Jinping's third term uh, in office. And I mean, this was a really long time coming. She, of course, he took power in 2012. And in, over the last few years, he has really got to work in centralizing power, in getting rid of a lot of his political opponents. And the decision of Xi to to dig his heels in on zero COVID is one that he perhaps needed to take because zero COVID is sort of hand in hand with his legitimacy. It was his decision to lock down. And if he were to to scale back, would that be him admitting that he was wrong? And of course, one thing that was really interesting was he got rid of Li Keqiang, who had publicly criticized uh, the, the COVID lockdown. And we're now seeing these incredible protests all across China and these incredibly dystopian scenes of these, white, these guys in white boiler suits dragging people out of their apartments all over Chinese social media. I mean, what do you make of what's happening in, in China at the moment? To some degree, the most important thing that happened in China this year was the uh, zero COVID decision, uh, rather than the decision to anoint uh, to reanoint Xi. Um, the zero COVID decision was possibly, I, I think, are almost certainly the most important thing that any that he or any person in China did this year because it impacted all of us. It changed supply chains. It transformed economies. It uh, saved, you know, certainly a number of people's lives, but. You know, coupled with the fact that they didn't vaccinate people, um, they didn't uh, build up any kind of stockpile of medicine as we're seeing now, and maybe at risk of a winter wave, um, in which the FT has modeling which says that up to a million people may die, um, suggests that actually it wasn't simply she winning the third term, but actually the decisions he made along the way, particularly zero COVID, which uh, I think will go down as... You know, we can quibble with it because in the early parts of 2020, zero COVID was the, the right thing to do. It saved God knows how many lives. Uh, but by this point now, 
the continuation of zero COVID through the summer and the Shanghai lockdown and all these things had impacts on all of us. And for financial markets, if I may say, that's the only story that matters out of China, 100%. I'm really interested in where it goes because I don't think he's going to be able to prevail this way. At some point, he will have to make change. What does he do? What external force can he blame for that? He's there. We know he's there in pretty much in perpetuity. I suppose that is a strength that he does have. He can make a change without losing power, but he doesn't want to lose face. And that seems to be the problem. We already see, right? Effectively, zero COVID is dead now um, it, it, for all intents and purposes. Now in Beijing, you can quarantine at home. Uh, you can take public transport. The requirement for mass testing is effectively gone. Um, you know, the, they're starting a vaccination drive. So you, you see suddenly state media is pivoting in this way um, that sort of doesn't acknowledge the history of what just happened. Um, but but now, I think the difficulty will be, as you say, how does how do they sort of frame this and who do they blame? And it, it seems increasingly clear to me that they're going to blame sort of the overzealous local officials who police zero COVID, the people who, you know, went too far. There are these sort of isolated reports of apartment buildings in Beijing and Guangzhou and Shanghai where residents are questioning the police um, as to whether they have the authority to conduct these uh, building-wide lockdowns. Um, and so the blame is being put, as it often is in autocratic regimes, not at the person who made the decision, but the people who are enforcing the decision. And it looks For like... For doing what they were told to do in the effectively, first place. Yeah. Or, or where the incentives lay. And the incentives yes. clearly lay in locking down. The global narrative has completely changed. I mean, I remember at the start of the pandemic, we were all being told the Chinese have handled this so much better than That's the Western countries. Oh, my God. The shows of power of China. And now you're looking at a situation where here we are. I mean, <laughs> the four of us uh, debating here. You go to the United States, the president of the United States says it's over. The pandemic is over. Let's get back to work. You have every major CEO that says work from home is over. And in Europe, essentially, you're back to kind of how life was before with some minor restrictions. But the narrative has changed. You know, this idea that China handled COVID better, does it stand two years later? I just I just want to quickly, because we're running out of time. Maria, I, I have to ask you the money question, because part of the decision to pull back will be an economic one. And the CCP, they they put off publishing their GDP growth in the last quarter of this year because it was not good news. They had set this target of 5.5% or whatever, and it was 3%. And so, you know, part of the CCP's legitimacy is the fact that it was able to raise millions out of poverty. And so for the Chinese people, a lot of them have been tolerant of the CCP and of the ideology because it has benefited them in some sense. And if that goes, if the Chinese economy trips, the whole world shakes. So what do you think is going to, to happen in the months to come? Given. I think for markets and investors, they want to see this policy being dropped. This is the one thing they want to see. I, I work in Bloomberg, financial uh, news, traders, investors. This is the one thing they probably check every day. Has there been any changes? The market immediately rallies on any rumor that potentially suggests some of the restrictions are going to be changed. On the Chinese data, I mean, that shows you it is not or was not looking good, but also a lot of the analysts out there, and this is not a secret, also tell you they do their own data and analysis because they don't trust uh, the official numbers either. But again, I think it goes back to the narrative before, you know, we're being told China handled this so much better than everyone else. I think after two years, have they handled this better? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to maintain that line of we did a good job here and everyone else kind of didn't. And that has flipped. You know, you have an economy in the United States where it is kind of back to normal. 
mean, and the economy. Yeah, I think, like the danger is, like, I, I sort of don't want to be put into the position of being a CCP apologist. Uh, uh, I don't mean to <laughs> claim that point. I just think you know both things can be true, right? Um, we shouldn't forget how many people died in Britain uh, and how many people died in Germany and how many people died in the United States. Um, and so, you know, the fact is, zero but COVID, once you got the vaccination campaign and the and vaccine that's, that's was the like, out, yeah, I think is that right. not a political decision where you say, oh, "I will get the most effective." vaccine i don't care where it comes from and you were offered multiple times in china you know there's many other options not just the one that you made that that's vaccine nationalism once you had the vaccine that flipped it was get vaccinated it was a political decision do it in some countries in europe almost you were i mean you have to take this vaccine and you have to do it i remember in brussels to go to any restaurant show this uh, pass you know there's just that, that that is a political decision to get the best contract it costs money. Sure, no problem. I don't care where it comes from. But but you ch take the best vaccine you can possibly do and you do a good vaccination campaign. Well, well, the thing I would say about that is inflexibility is a feature, not a bug of authoritarian systems. And there is only one way, at least that I see through it, for is that he has to change his policy. He has to acknowledge, however tacitly, he can say that it was a great idea for a long time. I might disagree how long that should have been, but, you know, he could say... Well, we are now in a different phase, very good at you know, inventing new phases in new eras. If you want to change something in China, it's been done many times before. You simply put a new set of words around it. It does seem that he has difficulty with that specifically on COVID. And it may be that it's because he's seen as so much the author of that decision. And as you reflect quite rightly, Judith, he has also got rid of people who were obviously trying to push him in a more nuanced direction. So all he can do now is continue a cycle of repression. I'm really interested in where it goes because I don't think he's going to be able to prevail this way. Yeah, I, I think like um, my my what I was struck by in the list is um, I, I just my my sort of uh, general sense is it's a really weird thing to say while sitting in London with a series of correspondents who live and work in Europe, but functionally, you know, I mean, in the future of this world is, does not hinge in this part of the world. Um, Beijing will define it and DC will define it and growing populations and changing demographics in parts of South Asia, South Southeast Asia and Africa will define it. And, you know, uh, people come to power and they don't. And frankly, the, mo the more important things are the subtler shifts that are happening in Chinese politics, in uh, sort of growth and power of Xi Jinping and the curtailment of his power, whether he decides to invade Taiwan or not, uh, what Japan decides to do, uh, changing uh, Pacific alliances um, and how people change in terms of their investments in renewables. These are all the things that will actually, I think, define. These are the decisions, I think, that will define the coming decade. Um, and frankly, you know, it goes back to Maria's point that, you know, in some ways, Eastern Eastern and Central Europe is right. Like the, the leaders in Brussels and Berlin and Paris are accessible and interesting and they do matter. But functionally, they matter because of past performance, holding UN Security Council seats, not because of future economic growth, not because of future demographic demographic growth. These are the things that are happening in parts of Asia and parts of Africa and parts of Southeast Asia that that will define how this world changes um, and, and, and how we live and particularly how Beijing behaves. So then my question is, what do you guys, were you heartened perhaps, or am I reading too much into things with how almost sort of chummy Biden and Xi were at the G20 in Indonesia? And they both said quite some interesting things. They both said, they both alluded to the fact that the world is sort of counting on us to be the grown-ups and to recognize that we are at a time of unprecedented global challenge that we cannot figure out on our own. I mean, what did you guys make of that meeting? 
I think it's always dangerous to read too much into um, individual statements by these leaders. I think it's good that the United States and China cooperate. But I think there's reasonable sort of particularly on climate, um, fantastic essay, again, I referenced foreign affairs, fantastic essay in foreign affairs that made the case that actually U.S.-China climate competition is better for the world than climate cooperation. What does U.S.-China climate cooperation actually mean? Whereas actually, if you have the U.S. and China competing like crazy, um, like the U.S. is doing now with the Inflation Reduction Act and China is doing with its sort of uh, carbon targeting and building of solar panels, isn't that kind of better for the world in a way? And so, you know, in a lot of ways, um, and frankly, we can talk all we want about them being sort of chummy, but the incentives are still towards the United States and China not cooperating. Well, they did say that it's important to compete, but to not end up in in conflict. And so I think perhaps the idea that you know are we going uh, are we going to go to war with China over Taiwan? It seemed to be downplayed quite a lot. It has been downplayed. Would you say it has been? Down- I mean, I mean, I think ultimately with the case of. Ukraine, what Vladimir Putin figured out is that they're not going to put boots on the ground. They're not going to go all in to help Ukraine. And, 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 and that's essentially kind of what happened. Then he miscalculated on, on the Western response, which has been super p- compact, and, and the money, the cash, and all of this. But in your view, I wonder when you, you know, this G20 meeting happens and you get this communique, which for a lot of people is relief. I mean, it, it was not escalation. In fact, it sounded okay. okay. Do you take that? Do you take any lessons there and, and kind of uh, does it signal anything about what could happen in, in, in Taiwan? Do you think the Chinese walked out of that meeting being like the United States yeah. would not risk it all for, no, th- for, think, for this think, country or the opposite? I think you're both right in that it is a sort of lower temperature. But I mean, I think, again, we have to sort of remove ourselves from this G20 meeting, right? Like this meeting happened and great. Everyone was sort of a little bit pally. But Xi Jinping is still believes himself to be a man of history, right? I think we all agree on that. And that includes I, what? I mean, yeah. he believes he's a Mao Zedong level leader, and that inevitably in, in, must certainly include the takeover of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that uh, can you describe a Xi Jinping scenario in which like he does not want that? Now, he may be sort of held back from that, but it seems clear from all the literature that we know about him and ser- seems clear from American intelligence and, you know, admiral after admiral. And, you know, you might say that they're asking for increased defense spending, mm-hmm. but will come out and say, hey, this could happen next year. Or it certainly could happen within a 2027 scenario at the sort of centenary of the finding of the PLA. And so the idea that this one meeting sort of makes us calmer because, I mean, we should not – Ukraine is one thing, but really an, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and an American uh, inability or refusal to defend Taiwan would shred the entire American defense structure in the Pacific. Japan wouldn't trust the United States. Korea wouldn't trust the United States. Australia – I mean, all of these countries that rely on the United States for defense um, implicitly or explicitly would – immediately cease to rely on the United States. We would have this enormous multitudinous impact. This is, and so, I mean, she also must know this, that, you know, if he was to successfully um, pull this off, it would work. The other thing I think we can take, there are two things I take from, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. One is a tactical thing, which we kind of alluded to. Uh, American and Western defense stockpiles are falling, right? And, you know, the NATO has talked about this. Um, there's a really interesting Rusi analysis that makes the point that maybe, you know, China takes a lot from this, that actually in a sort of, sorry, um, a, uh, an American, uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan will mean that, you know, Western defense stockpiles are not what they were. And so actually, like, how long could they supply Taiwan's military, which, you know, has been reported to be wildly underprepared for an invasion? Um, well, I mean, the thing with President Xi is I think, unlike a lot of Western leaders, he does not think in election term cycles. I mean, you know, 
uh, traditional two-term limit. He is the, he has like a hundred-year plan. He has like a five-hundred-year plan for for China, and I think he is laying the groundwork. And when it comes to Taiwan, I feel like we are not likely to see the Chinese Navy encircling the island or trying to get their boots on the ground. I expect what we would see is economic leverage uh, and ways in which the Chinese can reassert their control and their authority on Taiwan without a shot being fired, because also that makes it much harder for the US to to really justify getting involved in anything. But I think this idea of, you know, there is a Thucydides uh, great power trap that the US and China are inevitably headed towards conflict at some, some point in the future. I think we are sort of moving away from that. I mean, economic warfare can be pretty damaging, but I think... Oh, it certainly was. Mm, yeah, and but the I think, war, I think the, sure. the, the one of the interesting for, thing, though, is, you know, this podcast is called One Decision and, you know... One of the interesting things, though, is like, what are all the sort of decisions that feed up to the one decision, right? So Putin, what what's clear is Putin's intelligence as he went into, I, I mean, like sort of espionage intelligence, not his intellect, um, in the lead up to the war in Ukraine was clearly flawed. I mean, it was just a complete failure. Now, why do we think that Xi Jinping is getting real-time smart intelligence about Taiwan when all of the incentives for all of his underlings are to tell him he is right? He is now not going to be taken out of power. So what is the reasonable belief that, like, I'm going to tell Xi Jinping no, and in five years, I will still have a job because he will still be ruler of this country? But so you actually say that if Russia fails in Ukraine, that means or would mean this is a Chinese leader becomes increasingly paranoid. Maybe no, I'm I, not being told the right information. More, this can go very wrong. I mean, what what lessons then do you take I actually from think Ukraine? Like it's, it's it's the lesson of what happened before the invasion that we're, we should not fail to learn, right? Which is what the sort of academic Brian class calls the dictator fallacy, the dictator trap, which is when you're a dictator, everyone's incentives in the political structure is to tell you, yes, you are right. Absolutely. And so why do we think that Xi Jinping is getting this kind of nuanced analysis? And even if he reads it, why does he think it's reasonable? Because Everything seems to suggest that, like, actually, CCP cadres believe that the protests of, you know, uh, late November and early December were a foreign plot, mm -hmm. that the Hong Kong protests were gear were egged on by the United States. And it's not that they're sort of putting that out there. There is an element of belief in this. Well, you look at Hong Kong. There were uh, the Chinese said that, you know, they had their tanks, they had the military on standby, ready to help should the Hong Kong authorities need it to stem those protests. And that was not necessary because there were Chinese, uh, there was Chinese influence within Hong Kong. So Prashant, don't you, perhaps that is going to be the slightly more assiduous uh, and perhaps more strategic way in which um, she I mean, is going to claw back uh, authority over Taiwan. That's true. I mean, uh, Taiwan has, I mean, the Kuomintang has like been has been roundly defeated in previous elections. And so, you know, that's the Beijing friendly party. Um, it suggests that at the moment, at least Taiwanese and the uh, sort of war in Ukraine, it uh, seems to have uh, strengthened um, a sort of distance that they want from China. And there's probably some sense that I think, um, you know, the, the KMT is, is struggling in the polls. Um, and, and, and so the idea that I think making Hong Kong and Taiwan comparisons, they can only go a certain way. Hong Kong was still legally Chinese territory. Um, and so Beijing could impose a national security law. They cannot use those legal and political mechanisms in Taiwan in the same way. And the sort of round failure to promote the KMT in the last Tsai election suggests that actually Taiwanese are not particularly amenable to this kind of influence and have smartened up about it. So everything being said, the, the or, or everything we've debated here, there are still those that hope uh, he will play mediator between Russia and Ukraine. Can he actually do that? Uh, I'm curious what you two think, but if you were to suggest that he could, 
what does Xi Jinping get out of this? Will Will the United States suddenly drop its semiconductor sanctions? Will the United States suddenly sort of which sort they of, have just increased and are looking for right. European countries to increase? That's exactly a point. So but then what, you hear very conflictive signals where the head of the European diplomacy, Burrell, says. I do think that he can talk to Vladimir Putin in a way that maybe we can't, and that he's the one that can say, this is a red line, and you need to stop it now. Sit down and, and get a diplomatic way out of this. So I just wonder how much of this is just Western wishful thinking, and or, or how much of it can actually manifest, because I don't really see what's the incentive at this point to have Vladimir Putin look like the one who compromised, was humiliated. And if it does get to what could be the flashpoint that is Crimea. And we talked about it before. Oh, but he annexed Hassan. Yeah, but everyone knew that was fake. And he was there for, well, what, two days? I think it's clear that she, what she is doing, perhaps because he's been so disappointed by Putin, is he's clearly diversifying his his alliances. And we're seeing him moving into the Gulf. We have seen him through the Belt and Road Initiative, moving into Central Asia, mm, uh, which was the yeah. Russian mm. sphere, traditional Russian sphere of influence, and of course, in Africa. One of the difficulties is China is opaque. It's really hard to read. I, I don't claim to be, I just read a lot about China. I just find it a fascinating place. Um, I think even sort of well-versed China experts will tell you, you know, you're parsing details here and there. So, you know, we don't know. And that's, I think, part of the difficulty is, we could he be the mediator? Sure. But then I, I find the, the sort of biggest driver in my experience is we don't talk enough as journalists and analysts about what is the structural incentives for this to happen. Um, and the structural incentives for Xi don't seem to align to me with telling Putin to stop because he doesn't really get anything out of it. I mean, he gets maybe some sort of sense of being an international statesman, but like, you know, Again, like the United States isn't going to lift semiconductor sanctions. They're not going to suddenly say Taiwan the is part of China. China trade deal is also dead. The Silicon Belt, we mentioned it, is dead in Europe. Right. They're not going to suddenly drop sort of support for Japan building up its military. They're Absolutely not. Gonna, not. I mean, none of this is going to structurally change. So, what is Xi Jinping's incentive in this? If Vladimir Putin is, you know, if we at least buy something of the notion that Vladimir Putin is slowly bleeding Western defense stocks and making just life costlier for Europe and the United States right now. Isn't that kind of in, I mean, to some degree in Xi Jinping's incentive structure? Well, the speculation makes excellent fodder for podcasts. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, we are running out of time. We have run out of time. Um, but thank you uh, to all of my panelists. Um, That's been a, a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad to have, have you all on board uh, to talk about this year in review. Thank you so much for joining us here on One Decision, looking at the year in consequential choices that have shaped our world this year. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to us so you never miss a show. We drop new podcasts every Thursday. And if if you're feeling generous, do give us your vote. We've been shortlisted for the Signal Listener's Choice Awards for Best Conversation Starter for our episode earlier this year on Lithuania, taking on the two Goliaths of Russia and China. Head on over to our Twitter page at OneDecisionPod for the link to vote. We'll put it in our show notes as well. For me and the team, thank you so much for being with us. See you next week. <laughs>